We have a number of readings this morning um, from across the book of Genesis, the first of which is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 29, which can be found on page 1 of the Church Bibles. Genesis 1, 26 to 29. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the seas, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Our second reading is from Genesis 3, verses 1 to 15, which can be found on page 2 of the Church Bibles. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then God, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, 
and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Our next reading is taken from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, which can be found on page 8 of the Church Bibles. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Our final passage is taken from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 26, which can be found on page 44 of the Church Bibles. Genesis 50, starting at verse 15. When Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Well, I realise if you're new to church things or new to this book of Genesis, that selection of readings may, may, may not have made much sense, um, but hopefully by the end of this morning, and definitely by the end of this year, those readings will make more sense. Um, we are, it's an exciting day because we are beginning a new motto series today. A motto series at this church is a series where we look at the same book of the Bible on Sunday mornings and across all of our small group um, networks, from young to old, from men to women, Um, so that together we can speak the truth in love as a whole church family, because we're looking at the same stuff. Many of us with Hebrews found that a great breath blessing last year, and now this year we're going to tackle Genesis. 
Uh, once we get going, next week onwards, we'll take a passage each week. We just work through a book consecutively here at Chalmers. But today I'm doing something different. This is a kind of overview of um, the book as a whole. Now, Genesis is the book of beginnings. How did the universe begin? How did humans begin? How did rebellion against God begin? How did natural disasters and suffering and sickness begin? How did God's people begin? And most importantly, I think, given this world is fallen and broken, how did hope begin? How did solid hope for the future begin? Genesis is the book of beginnings. Now, it does make it quite ironic, because next week we're starting in chapter 12, which is not the beginning. <laughs> we're not actually doing the beginning um, next week, because we've already been through chapters 1 to 11. Last term, we were preaching that. Uh, you may have missed it if you weren't here, or you may have missed it because it was in the evenings, um, but we are going to pick it up from 12 to 50 for our main Bible studies and from next Sunday onwards. Um, I'm conscious lots of us will have missed that, so here are a few ways we can catch up. Firstly, all our talks are online, so you can go on the website and listen back to last term's Genesis stuff. Um, for those small groups which we meet weekly, and we're hoping as many as possible do that, Core does that, Focus does that, we're hoping lots of home groups do that as well this year. Uh, there'll be a couple of studies on Genesis 1 to 3 before we get into the 12 onwards stuff. So that should help set the scene. For all of us, whether you're going to be weekly doing those studies or not, for all of us, there's a night coming up on Tuesday, the 5th of September, which hopefully a slide will appear for. Um, it's the next slide, I hope. Uh, I can't tell Liam. Hello. Um, uh, advertising a small group, leader, a small group intro evening. To be honest, the slide's not that exciting. There it is, there it is. Sorry, forget that. It's a very exciting slide. Tuesday, the 5th of September, um, we've come all together. Um, whatever network we're normally part of, um, Focus Undergraduates, Cord Postgrads and Young Workers, or the Home Groups, or the Ladies Bible Study, whatever we're part of, a chance to come on the 5th um, together and uh, get a, a kind of longer introduction to Genesis and start getting our toes in ourselves. Um, so please come to that. But actually, the single best way to get into this book is, unsurprisingly, to read it. You might like to read it a little bit at a time. If you've got a commute of any length to work, you could listen to a bit each day there and back. There's free um, audio on the ESV app or the BibleGateway.com has that. Uh, you could read it all in a one So I learned this week, um, Adam, who you just saw up here, um, apparently it takes him four hours to read Genesis cover to cover. So you can see if you're more or less fast than the adometer. Um, some of us actually have already started reading it. We set that challenge at the end of last term about um, uh, Genesis on the beach. Could you try and read Genesis on your summer holidays or in the rain, as it actually was for us? Um, some of us have already got going. Now, don't worry, if you haven't started, there's plenty of time to catch up. Um, but if you have started reading Genesis, I think quickly a few questions get raised. And I've put them at the top of this quite busy handout that you were given on the back sheet um, of the service sheet. I just want to run through four of these questions, which I think do come up as you read through Genesis. Firstly, why are there so many names? Name after name after name. And not just in the sense of lots of characters, but particularly lists of names. This person had this child, and then they had this child, and then they had this child. A kind of genealogy, a family tree happens again and again. So if you're still in Genesis, just turn to chapter 4. Um, but halfway through chapter 4, so page 4, chapter 4, 
verse 17. This is just a typical example of something you get in Genesis. Uh, So page 4, chapter 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. And we get a bit of information about him. And then verse 18. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered, and so on and so on. That's the end of chapter 4. Then look to chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In verse 3, when Adam lived for this amount of time, he fathered a son, and then we follow down the family tree, son after son after son and daughters. Um, So we're we're kind of really interested in family trees in this book. And it's not just at the start of the book. Just turn on to chapter 10. Chapter 10. I'm not going to read it, (laughs) but there's lots of names there. Another kind of all these nations that have descended from the sons of Noah. We'll turn over to chapter 11, which is where we got to at the end of last term. Uh, 11 verse 10, these are the generations of Shem, and you get a whole load, load of names. Or verse 27, these are the generations of Terah, and then a whole other load of names. I mean, just to say, if you are going to volunteer to read up front church this year, you want to check which chapter of Genesis you're on, because there's a lot of names, some hard names. It's a real mouthful. But why? Why is the book so interested in these family trees? I was speaking to someone in the church who had actually started reading Genesis, and they said to me they got a bit bogged down. I said, oh, where did you get bogged down? And they said, chapter 46. And I was like, oh, brilliant. But you were so close to the end. Like, what, what stopped you? Chapter 46, list of names. It's genealogy, another one. In fact, that phrase, these are the generations of is the chapter heading of Genesis. It's how the book is split up. There's 10 of them, and they're like the episodes in the series that is Genesis. Interestingly, though, the episodes are not equal. So some genealogies, like the generations of Esau, for example, just gets one chapter, chapter 36, whereas his brother Jacob gets 10, a huge story. And that will happen again and again. We hear loads about Abraham and about Jacob and about Joseph and tiny bits about other branches in the family tree. So why? I mean, why is the book even interested in family trees, and why does it spend so much time on particular branches? Abraham's branch, and then within Abraham, certain children of Abraham. Well, my promise is, if you stay awake to the end of this talk, I'll give you an answer, or at least an attempt at an answer. But first, we're going to look at another question. Here's another observation about the book. So, chapters 1 to 11, it's really big scale, wide angle, kind of panoramic view of all creation. There's the heavens and the earth. There's the creation of humanity. There's the the rise and fall of nations, the flood. It's epic. If it was a movie, it would be full of like thousands of extras. There'd be locations all over the place. There'd be lots of CGI. Big stuff, covering hundreds of years, many, many generations. Then... Chapter 12, suddenly, it all slows down, and it zooms in. Grand opera becomes soap opera. Literally, it's just one family and how they get on. In fact, we only get four more generations for the next 38 chapters. Really slows down. Striking that. So it's not just why all the names, it's why this family gets all the camera time. That's question two. Okay, question three. Why so many similar stories? Again, if you've read through, you might well notice a sense of deja vu. The kind of, hang on, haven't I heard this before? 
where Abraham pretends his wife is his sister? Or haven't I heard about a barren woman who can't have children and then does? Or haven't I heard about sibling rivalry where the younger brother is chosen before the older brother? Have I kind of restarted the audio Bible, the wrong chapter? I've kind of gone back a few steps. What's going on there? Well, not as sometimes people claim that Genesis has just been badly patched together. There were lots of different sources, and the editor wasn't clever enough to kind of iron out the, the events that got described twice from different people. Not that at all. No, a far better explanation is that God has some key lessons to teach us in those repetitions. Pay attention to them when they happen. And again, I'll touch on some of the lessons later this morning. Finally, though, I want to move to the question which I think might be the most urgent one in our minds, if you have been reading, which is this. Why do the, Hebrew, the heroes of this book behave so badly? Now, there's a lot of behavior in Genesis that is shocking and abhorrent. This is not a book that pretends we live in a kind of happy Lego world where everything is awesome, you know, plastic, fantastic. The Bible is really realistic say that this world is full of horrors and wrongs, sadness, sickness, suffering, and sin. Sin in the way that nations will treat other nations. Sin in the way that families treat each other and become dysfunctional. Sin in the way humans sin against other human beings with deceit or sexually or violently. As I said in the notice earlier, it's grim reading at times. I think the most shocking thing of all for us is that it's sometimes the people of God doing those things. It's they who are wicked in in lots of what they do and say. You see, if if you're scanning through Genesis to find the good guys or the good girls, it turns out that even the so-called good people, the the God's chosen people, are not good. I think that can leave us really puzzled about what we do with it. I think especially because our, our default approach to the Bible is often to, to read the Old Testament the way we look at a, a family photo. So a big group family photo. What's the first face you look for first? Well, your own. <laughs> you want to check, am I looking okay? And we often do that with the Bible. Kind of where am I in this story? And how could I look good? Am I looking okay? If we do that with Old Testament stories, we'll miss a lot of what's going on. God is not writing the Bible just to tell us how to be good people, just giving us some moral examples to emulate or copy. After all, lots of the heroes are not heroic at all. They're a complete mess. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Judah, they are a mess, often not worth copying. So what's going on? Well, this next sentence is important. It gets us into the heart of what I'm going to say this morning, and I think this book is going to teach us. Genesis wants us to lift our eyes from the humbling horror of humanity to the wonderful hope of God. From the humbling horror of what we are like to the wonderful hope of what he is like. God is the true hero of this book. So let me pray for God's help as we turn to some of the answers to these questions and see how relevant this is to Edinburgh today. Let's pray. Our Father, as we've sung, we do praise you. We praise your name as the great creator of all, 
the creator of each of us sitting here this morning. We thank you for your kindness and your goodness, your integrity, your truthfulness. And we pray this morning you would begin to lift our eyes to see how great you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's get in then to some answers, having seen some questions. Um, I've got three big ideas to introduce us to Genesis this morning. Point one, God is the only hero. Point two, God's promises are the only hope. And then very briefly, we won't have much time for it, faith is the key response. That's Genesis in a nutshell. God is the only hero. God's promises are the only hope. And so faith is the key response. So let's get into number one. God is the only hero. Now this picks up what we were just grappling with in terms of the difficult questions. Uh, The fact that you look for good guys in the book and, and they're not in fact good, they're a mess. You look in vain, actually, for a human hero who's, who's not corrupt at some point in the book. The only exception is Joseph, but we'll come back to him later. That's important. Um, but right from Adam and Eve's failure onwards, main character after main character stuffs up, failing to trust God, failing to treat others well. So actually, by a process of elimination, it's pretty clear God is the only hero. I mean, the competition's not strong, but the standard is pretty low. Um, He's the only consistently truthful, kind, good character in Genesis. But actually, it's not just a lack of competition. Actually, Genesis teaches loud and clear that God is the one sovereign, gracious God. That is, he is the king who is kind, the hero, the only hero in lots of ways. Just to show how early it shows that, um, just turn back to Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis 1, first sentence of the Bible and of this book. Let's see who the hero is of sentence 1. In the beginning, 1 verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, it was just God. God, no one else. No competing deities, no pantheon of lots of gods, no primordial soup, no existing matter to operate with, just God creating everything from nothing. Now, in the ancient world, that was a radical claim to make. It was widely held that there were multiple gods who must have had a fight or had sex, and accidentally the world came out as an accidental byproduct. It's a radical claim, actually, to make in our world... Our stories are slightly different, but they're widely held, that somehow something emerges from nothing and then arranges itself into the finely tuned complexity of the cosmos and somehow produces the unique personhood, morality, consciousness that we see in humanity. That's quite a story. But Genesis says, no, God is the only hero. And everything about the way Genesis 1 is written shows his his total control, effortless control. He says it and it happens. But actually, what's great about Genesis 1, it's not just that he's strong, the king, the one in charge, the boss. It's that he's kind and generous. To show you that, um, we're going to look at verse 28. What do you think the first words, the first thing God does to humanity after he's created them? Verse 28 of chapter 1, and God blessed them. He's kind. His creation is an overflow of his love. He blessed them, and then he's generous. Be fruitful and multiply. There's some purpose. Um, Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over creation. There's some responsibility. 
And verse 29, behold, I've given you every plant. There's some provision. God is kind, generous in creation. Not just strong, but kind. You see, creation shows God is the hero, the only hero. These people didn't do anything to deserve it, just as we haven't. It's just his sovereign, undeserved kindness to them, to give them life and a wonderful world to enjoy. Which, of course, makes it all the more shocking what happens in chapter 3. You see, humanity rebel against God, reject his rule. They think they could do better. They think they could make up what's right and wrong in this universe and get away with it. They're egged on by Satan, the serpent, telling them lies, and they try and take God's place. Now, of course, that's nonsense. He's the creator, not them. It's not going to work. He's the life giver. He's the king. And so God brings judgment. And yet, even in his judgment, even as he announces curses like we read on the serpent, we see his grace. So humanity do not immediately die. He provides clothing for them. He provides hope for them. He provides the promise of children to come for them. Amazing kindness not to give up. That's God being the hero. Even in judgment, he's blessing. But then actually, as you go through chapters 3 to 11, well, humanity just gets worse and worse. The human heart is now universally selfish, sinful, and violent. The crimes get worse. Murder, abuse, wide-scale rebellion against God. Still, God doesn't give up. You might well have thought the Bible would be a three-chapter book. Well, that's it. If you're going to rebel, you'll surely die. Game over. But God doesn't give up. And then when, when that sin spreads, when he witnesses the, the murder of Abel by Cain, you might well have thought, chapter 6, God would say, well, that's enough. The flood, wiping everyone out. But he doesn't give up. He saves Noah and starts again with him. Or you might have thought, when you get to chapter 11, and the nations at the Tower of Babel unite against God, assert themselves, well, surely then God's going to give up. But no. He's so determined to bless, so kind in his kingship that he chooses to bless Abraham. Which brings us to Genesis 12. Um, So against the backdrop, and this is where we got to uh, last term, against the backdrop of this kind of international rebellion against God, um, God decides at that moment to launch his plan to bless the world through Abraham. So turn to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. And this is a really big moment in not just the book of Genesis, but the whole Bible story. Um, It's actually a reversal of the curse that has happened in Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, where there was that rebellion against God, God's judgment had come as a curse, curse, curse. Now listen to Genesis 12, 2, and see if you can see the turnaround. Genesis 12, verse 2, to Abraham, God says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this isn't happening because Abraham is a good egg. (laughs) Like everyone else, he's rotten on the inside. Um, It's just happening because God, in his kindness, is choosing to bless. And it's an amazing moment. If you want to know, kind of when in the flow of the Bible story 
do we know that there'll be a happy ending? The answer is Genesis 12. It's the moment when God says there is a route to blessing. In fact, I'm committed to bless the nations through this particular family. And this brings us to our second big point. So we've seen that God's the only hero. Everyone else is rotten, but his sovereign grace carries on. Now we're seeing that God's promises are the only hope. God's promises are the only hope. Now, I really can't overestimate how important this is. It's undoing a lot of the damage caused by Adam and Eve and the judgment at Genesis 3. So think about it. Adam and Eve were shut out of God's presence. But now God says to Abraham, I'll be your God. I'll bless you. We'll come back into relationship together. Adam and Eve were kicked out of God's place, kicked out of the Garden of Eve, of Eden. Sorry. And then God's saying, as we read on, that he'll give Abraham a land to live in with God. And in terms of people, Adam and Eve were told they would die and it would be hard to have children. To be fruitful and multiply is now difficult, fraught with pain and trouble. But Abraham will be told, you'll have more descendants than the stars. Can you hear the point? It's God's plan to begin to reverse the curse, to turn the curse and the judgment into blessing. There'll be one path for blessing, and the road it will go down is the family of Abraham. This is starting to get to why the book cares so much about family trees. God commits to bless the world through one family, the family of Abraham, the line of Abraham. Tonight in our evening services, we're starting Matthew's Gospel. And we're actually starting from chapter 3, obviously beginnings, um, because we've done 1 and 2 previously. Uh, We're doing Matthew's Gospel. The first line of the first page of Matthew's Gospel, which is the first page of the New Testament, the very first words are these. The book of the genealogy... So it turns out it's not just Genesis that cares about family trees. Of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, Jesus came into this family that God committed himself to. Right here, right back at the start, he's saying, I will bless the world through this line, this one family. Actually, it explains loads of stuff. Not just why the book cares so much about family trees. Not just why it's uneven in sometimes not giving much attention over here, but lots of attention to over here. It explains that thing about the first 11 chapters are about all the world. And then from 12 onwards, it's just about Abraham's family. Because that is where God has put the X marks the spot. Blessing will be found here. This is the key family. This is the line of promise. And this is why when that family itself is sinful and infighting and tearing itself apart, and I mean, much of Genesis does read like a Jerry Springer episode. Actually, it's really serious. This is not entertaining. It's, it, it, it's the hope of humanity on this family. And yet their sin threatens to compromise the whole plan. So God's promises are the only hope. And as we go through watching this family, we're going, to see, um, we're going to see kind of God's promises tracing down the generations. And actually explains a lot of the drama. So why is there so much sibling squabbling? Well, it's often about who gets the blessing. 
Why is there so much at stake when there's a famine? Because this family might die out. Or when the enemies come into the land and try and attack them. Or this family, all dying, would be a universal tragedy because this is where hope is found in the world. Even more seriously, given that Cain killed Abel, we know it's possible, will this family tear themselves apart by their sin? The brothers get pretty close with Joseph at the end of the book. But here's the thing. You face these seemingly insurmountable problem after problem that that kind of threaten God's promises. So the barrenness of Sarah or Rebecca, or how will they have children and continue the family tree? The age of Abraham and Sarah, or how's the tree going to start? The opposition of kings have said the famine, the chaos of their sin... It seems like everything's going to stop these promises. There's no way they're going to happen. But God is committed. He's the only hero. And he is more than strong enough, more than kind enough to see his promise through. Okay, that's the second point. God's promises are the only hope. Um, Now, in a moment, I'm going to talk about faith very briefly at the end. But I've just got... Just a few more minutes where I'd love you to concentrate because I'm about to talk about the thing that's got me most excited about Genesis over the summer. Um, And so please do tune in, take a deep breath or whatever you need Um, because if you look on this uh, table on the sheet, I've already talked about the stuff on the right-hand side, the kind of threats to these promises, all the different threats on the ground that might stop God's promised blessing coming through this family tree But what I haven't yet said is that actually this book is interested not just in the um, children as a whole, kind of all the offspring of Abraham. Actually, increasingly, the book focuses on a particular child from Abraham, a particular offspring. Now, the word Genesis uses is seed, but it's it's translated offspring in our Bible, which is good, actually, because offspring can mean lots of descendants, like, let me introduce you to all my grandchildren, my offspring, lots of them. Or it can mean a particular descendant, one, one individual. Now, both are important in Genesis. The whole family matters. But it's the significance of one chosen individual, which is really amazing. So turn with me back to chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15. This won't take hugely long, but it is absolutely amazing. So please... Stick with me. 3 verse 15. Now this is where God is cursing the serpent, which is Satan, and God's opponent and, and enemy of God's people. Uh, and verse 15, he says something that, that um, is talking about the corporate use of this word offspring. So I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So it's saying there's going to be two groups in humanity. You could divide humanity into two groups. Not those who love dogs, and those who don't, but those who love God and those who don't. Two groups. And it's just saying that there'll be conflict, actually, that, that the, the seed of the serpent will keep attacking um, uh, God's people, and we see that through the book. Two different lines. Okay, you with me? So far, so corporate groups. But look at the second half of verse 15. It gets really interesting. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. One offspring, one particular individual born from the woman, so a human being, will smash the head, literally, and you will smash his heel. As in, he will kill the serpent. If you stand on the serpent's head, it's a goner. 
But in the process, you will bruise his heel, wound him. Now, lots of Christians have recognized this as as the first promise of a Messiah, a coming one, a coming human being who will suffer but defeat evil. It's a picture of Jesus. Now, you may think, yeah, but it's quite a vague picture of Jesus. I mean, it's quite enigmatic. I mean, yes, that's the cross where Jesus defeats evil whilst also being suffering himself, taking a hit. But it's quite vague, isn't it? Well, read on in Genesis. So let me just run through this left-hand column. You see, this offspring promise starts to track through particular individuals. And often there's a choice. Those stories about one, one individual child, not the other, show God making a choice, trying to draw our attention to something. So you get Isaac, not Ishmael. Now, Isaac was the miraculous birth, the birth that should never have happened, versus Ishmael, which was the DIY job kind of human strength version. So we're seeing that this servant-crushing seed, who, chapter 12, will be found in the family of Abraham, will then, chapter 17, be the miraculously born seed, not just the human DIY job. And as you read on, he'll be a surprising choice. Jacob, not Esau. Surprising, because Esau was the firstborn. Jacob, surprising. So he'll be a serpent-crushing human um, seed from the family of Abraham, uh, miraculously born, and chosen by God when you wouldn't expect him to be the chosen one. But then it gets even more amazing. Because in the story of Joseph, the next major narrative, in the story of Joseph, Joseph is chosen to be the one the ruler over his brothers. That's what all the dreams are about, they get so annoyed about. He's chosen to be the king of his his brothers. And then those brothers, the people of Israel, reject him and cause him to suffer. He gets left for dead. He gets wrongly imprisoned, wrongly convicted, even though he's righteous. He is the one righteous one in the book. Uh, He is kind of gone, as, as far as they can tell, kind of done and dusted. And then this extraordinary turnaround where he's vindicated, exalted, put on the throne over nations, Egypt and all the surrounding nations, and is able to save them as the king who's been rejected and suffered unrighteously. If that doesn't sound like Jesus, I don't think we know the story of Jesus very well. It's extraordinary. The serpent-crushing offspring isn't just a miraculous child who's chosen by God against the odds. He's actually a a ruler who suffers unrighteously before being vindicated, coming back seemingly from dead and buried uh, to save his people. I wonder what you make of that. Perhaps some are here thinking, oh no, I've heard this kind of thing. This is like a horoscope, which I don't recommend. But you know those horoscopes that say, you will meet someone important today. And then afterwards, you can kind of fill in. It's so vague, you can put anything in there. I'm trying to say that God, in his promises, doesn't make it vague. He makes it really specific. I mean, already that's a lot of specific stuff. There's one more bit. Right at the end of the book, there's a final twist in the tale. See, having had so much about Joseph, you might think, oh, okay, so Joseph will be the the tribe, the the line through which God's promised saviour comes. I I know where to find the serpent crusher. He'll be in Joseph's family. Except, in a final twist, when the promise is passed on from Jacob, 
He doesn't give it to Joseph and his kids and grandkids. He gives it to Judah. It's a real surprise moment. We'll get there in Genesis 49 eventually. Uh, Judah is the one from whom the king will come, the one who all the other tribes will bow down to. Judah will be where the king comes from. Judah, the tribe of David, where Jesus comes from. But it's even better than that. Do you know what Judah has just done before he's given this role? He offered his life as a substitute for Benjamin. I mean, he starts as a complete loser, but by the end, he's modeling exactly what we need. So there you go. You've got the serpent-crushing offspring, a specific human child who will defeat evil. And then you know which family to find him in, Abraham. And then you know what kind of birth to expect, a miraculous one. And then you know that he might not be the person you would choose, but God has chosen him, uh, Esau and Jacob. And then you know he's going to be a king, rejected by his brothers, the nation of Israel, suffering unjustly, then rising from seeming oblivion to sit on the throne and save everyone. And you know you will find him in the tribe of Judah, where he will offer himself as a substitute for many. I mean, that is the Christian gospel. It's it's what was written many, many, many years later when people watched Jesus Christ go to the cross and then rise from the dead and then sit on the throne and say, through me, all nations can be blessed. It's absolutely extraordinary. The gospel according to Genesis. I don't know what points are in your gospel outline, kind of. We people are bad, we've rebelled, we need to be saved. God's grace is the only hope. God's grace through a particular saver, a king who dies on the cross as a substitute for us. It is all in Genesis. Extraordinary. And so very, very briefly, and it is brief, uh, faith is the key response. Faith is the key response. So that's what God's doing in this book, showing us that hope lies with him and his sovereign grace showing us that hope is centred on his promises to work through Abraham and through this suffering, serpent-crushing saviour, king. But what's the response? Well, faith. It's pretty simple. We need to trust that God. Of course, we should trust him. He's good. He's the only hero. We should also trust him because he's given us specific promises, specific commitments. You can check them and see if he keeps them through the rest of the Bible. And actually, loads of the action in the book is people learning to trust him. Abraham had to learn to trust God. Jacob, Joseph, Judah had to learn to trust God. That is, trust God even when it doesn't look like his promises are going to happen. Even when it's painful or messy on the ground. Even when it looks like we've stuffed it up and there's no hope from here even when we're in a dark tunnel of scary opponents or huge delays to what we hope for or messy sin, God's sovereign grace can be trusted. We don't have time to unpack this this morning, but I'm aware across the church family there are some folk who are just going through awful things at the moment. Death of family members, battles with serious illness, Struggles with mental health, opposition, weariness in a fallen world, grief of things not being the way they should be. And at first sight, you might think, well, Genesis isn't really the book for me. I wish we were doing something different this year. Maybe a psalm would be good. How long, O Lord? 
Can I say, though it might not seem as immediately personal as going to the Psalms or the Gospel, actually this book, Genesis, this book above all others in the Bible, will teach us to trust God. Trust God in the dark. Trust God when it doesn't look like it. Trust God when it's hard to reconcile his good promises with the sorrow and the suffering and the evil we see around us, even in our own hearts. God says, I am bringing a serpent-crushing seed to bring blessing to the nations and to take you home to my place as my people for eternity. We just need to trust him. And this book will help us. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this extraordinary book inspired by your Holy Spirit, written so many centuries before Jesus came, before the king who suffered, who crushed evil even as he was wounded himself. We thank you for your kindness in giving us promises that we can trace through your word, trace through history, and so grow in trust with. And we pray very much for everyone here, whether we've just stumbled upon Christian stuff just in church for the first time, or whether we've read this book loads before, but still have more to discover, we pray that this would be a year where our trust of you grows, even in the hardest, messiest, most painful times of life. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.